Welcome Blue Mountain Baptist Church to another great Sunday. I wish you were here on a Friday night having a great time with us, but it's me, like two people, and an empty room, but we love you. We're glad you're here, and uh, hopefully we can really dig into God's Word tonight and uh, apply it to our lives. Uh, That's what we want, hopefully. So let's begin in Luke chapter 4. We'll read verses 31 through 37. This is a very simple story. I've read it a lot of times. Quite honestly, I've overlooked it, and as I've dug into it, uh, it it really impresses um, something that I've never really thought about upon my heart, and I hope it does yours. Let's begin by reading in verse 31, and I'll read through 37, and then we'll dig in it verse by verse. It says this, and he, referring to Jesus, went down to Capernaum. Capernaum is a city in Galilee. It's a small town, just a stone's throw to the north of Galilee. Um, the Sea of Galilee, that is. We saw pictures last week. We'll see some pictures next week. But small town, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down into their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Now, I know it's a simple story, um, and maybe not quite as exciting as Jesus walking on water or some of the many miracles of the Old Testament, but it's a powerful story. For instance, uh, I don't know what's happening in your life, wherever you're at this week, but uh, we've discovered toilet paper is the great gift that people like, and many times we've been receiving toilet paper in the past. I mean, we're living in strange times. And I happened to call my dad and ask him this week how he was doing in the past week. And somehow the conversation got turned around to toilet paper. And he goes, you know, when I was a kid, when we ran out of toilet papers, it was about corn cobs. And I'm looking at him, I'm like, did you just say corn cobs? And I know what you're thinking right now. I'm a preacher and I just introduced a sermon with an illustration about corn cobs. Well, that's not the simple, strange story, but that just gives you an idea of how my dad grew up. He was very, very poor, and when I was growing up, he always worked two jobs, and I was thinking the other day, in all the time that he worked, and all the time that I spent at home, I can never remember one time that my dad complained about money. Not once did he whine. Not once was he obsessed with becoming a millionaire. He was just very happy, very much at peace with what he did. Therefore, I was happy and I was at peace. I never considered us anything other than rich, even though we weren't. As a matter of fact, when I wanted something and didn't get it, it was never like, we don't have enough money, woe is me. I just assumed he was kind of a big grouch and just didn't give it to me. (laughs) I was a spoiled little kid. But I was amazed And I never realized that in all the stories my dad told me over the years, just the simple reality that he never whined once as I was growing up about money. It was very powerful as I began to think about it. And as we're looking at this text, I got to tell you, um, 
until the past few weeks, I never really paid much attention to it. I'm reading it. I'm like, all right, yeah, Jesus is God. He has authority over demons, cast out a demon. Lots of stories like that in the Bible. Okay, seen that, done that, let's move on. But notice the focus here in verse 1. It says, And when he went down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. The focus of the passage here is on words and teaching and whose authority. And the message that I would entitle this little passage within Luke would be simply this, whose word has authority in your life? Because that's the question that you really have to ask yourself if you're hearing this and you're reading it, whose word has authority in your life? Well, in the past few weeks, here in Baker at least, it's Governor Kate Brown. We're living under an executive order, and the very reason that you're not here, at least most of you, is because of that order. But then, what other words have authority in our life? Well, what about the Constitution? Bill of Rights, Amendment Number 1, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people to peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. I don't know about you, but it feels like some of those words got trampled upon, or at least with some people. I don't know of many newspapers that have shut down, but the freedom for us to peaceably assemble, peaceably come together and exercise, whose word has authority? Is it Governor Kate Brown or is it the Constitution? Other states, I'm, I'm told, can't buy guns. Amendment number two, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Well, that one's been trampled on as well. Whose word has authority in our life? What's interesting is one of the most famous speeches of Abraham Lincoln's life was the Gettysburg Address, and he talked about the government being for the people, by the people, of the people, and as I researched that, I found that many people attribute that to a guy by the name of Wycliffe. John Wycliffe was the first individual that we know of that translated the Latin Bible in the late 1300s into English, the very first English Bible. And in the prologue of that Bible, and I've read it and I couldn't find it, but some people have attributed this quote to it, and it says this. It says, this Bible is for the government of the people, by the people, and for the people. So whose word are we to obey? It's a very interesting perspective, and the people listening to Jesus 2,000 years ago, they all of a sudden, hearing his teaching, realized his word had authority. And this entire passage is about his word. Now, I know there are some interesting things in here, and we'll get to them here in verse 33, but Quite frankly, I had never really thought about how important words were. Our entire nation is governed by not a military. The military can't force us to do anything. It's our agreement to a set of words. And our faith, yes, it's, we've been given a set of words. 
We've been given creation, and God has revealed himself in a variety of ways, but at the end of the day, we've been given Scripture, and the question is, what authority does it have in our lives? You might say, well, I believe in the Bible. Well, believing and doing are two separate things. Verse 33 says this, It says, and in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice. (laughs) you got to read that and go, well, he had a spirit of an unclean demon, what, as opposed to a clean demon? What's that all about? And then it says, and he cried out with a loud voice. A little creepy there, but now we're getting to the interesting part of the story, at least if you're a Sunday school teacher, right? So if I were a Sunday school teacher and you came up and handed me the first couple verses there, and you're like, all right, you're going to teach the kids about Jesus and his word and authority. I'd be like, "Mm, I don't know I can keep a bunch of kids entertained for an hour with that one. Give me something a little bit better. Now we're getting to the exciting part, right? That's what I would think. That's how I would read the passage. I'm like, oh, he was teaching. Of course, Jesus taught. Now we've got an unclean demon crying out with a loud voice. But notice this. The demon isn't Bouncing around the room, there's not some sci-fi scene that you would see out of Ghostbusters or, or some horror novel, fictional novel about blood coming out of the walls or people levitating and all kinds of craziness. No, he, he just cries out. So notice the contrast. Jesus is teaching with authority. How does the demon respond? With words. Think back. Think back just a couple weeks ago. We saw Jesus fulfilling as the Son of God what Adam failed to do, that title. And then immediately he goes out into the wilderness filled with the power of the Spirit, led by the Spirit as the Holy Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove. And he engages Satan, not in some sort of crazy battle, but with the Word of God. And Satan lies. He twists Scripture. And then contrast this. Most scholars believe the reason why that the text here says an unclean demon or the spirit of an unclean demon is to highlight the difference between the Holy Spirit and this unclean demon or spirit. He cries out with a loud voice. Verse 34 says, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Now remember, this is a translation of the Greek text. So ha, is, it's just a two-letter Greek word, and it occurs here only in the text. We have no idea what it really means. Ha is a good translation in the sense that it follows the Greek. It's two letters. But he, it, it's not a joke. Some people have read this, and he's like, is he making fun of Jesus? No, it's, think of it like, like, ugh, or no. Whatever the case is, it's this, this utterance uh, of agony. And he says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? So right off the bat, he begins to twist God's word just like Satan did in the, um, in the wilderness. The us, uh, there's no us. It appears to be just one demon. In other words, like in our business meeting, as an illustration, we operate by consensus. And when you talk at a business meeting, you're not allowed to say we or us unless there really is a we or us. You have to speak in the first person. You can't say, well, we think the, the carpet should be red. No, it's you think. So right away, the demon, believe it or not, is lying right here. And he says, Jesus of Nazareth, have have you come to destroy us? And the answer clearly is no. The the demon knows this. In Revelation, it says that 
Satan and his demons will be cast into the lake of fire and they will be in agony forever and ever. The time here is not destruction. He's lying right off, right, right off the bat. He says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. We have two different perspectives here. Jesus and his powerful teaching and his authority. And we have Satan and his demon here lying. And he's introducing just enough truth that you have to decide whose word to believe. Well, Jesus takes a different tact. He says in verse 35, But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. Many people have asked me, why do I believe the scriptures? And I believe, and my response is, well, I just simply believe it. I heard it to be true, and I believe it to be true. I've seen evidence and analyzed the evidence, and there's good foundation for it. But ultimately, it's a statement of faith. And one of the things that I see when I read the scripture is, it's not mythical. It doesn't in any way compare to the ancient myths that we read about from other societies and older uh, traditions or other traditions here, if this was a myth, <laughs> the story would be entirely different, right? This would, ha- this would make the worst sci-fi film ever. Like if you were watching this at home and you, you had this on, you would be going to get snacks in the kitchen at this point. It, it's like you enter, it's introduced, wow, we have a demon. What does the demon do? Nothing, he talks. He cries out, maybe a creepy voice, well, how does Jesus respond? Like a modern-day exorcism, or there's all kinds of stuff going on, right? You get supposedly the Catholic priest that has this secret little thing that he does, and you're, he's coming up there, and there's this big battle, and none of that happened. It's a quick conversation. He falls down, and what's so funny here in the text, he didn't even get hurt. <laughs> that was it. That was the, that was the whole battle you begin to get a sense that it really isn't much of a battle between Satan and his demons and God at all. I, frankly, fell into the trap. I was about to preach a sermon explaining what demons are and the history and what they're not and how it is so different than what we read in Scripture as far as popular level um, ideas regarding Satan and demons, but... That's not the point of the text. And we'll look at it a little bit. But a lot of times, in simple stories, we gravitate towards what we like rather than listening to what the story really is saying. Here, it's very simple. Be silent and come out of him. Jesus wanted nothing to do with the testimony of Satan. It was going to be his word and his testimony, not Satan's. Quite frankly, we can look over the boring parts of Scripture, or at least what we think are the boring parts, and just try to focus on the fun stuff, but miss the truth of it. Here's where we have to really look at our own lives, a little bit of application here. I'm telling you about this exorcism that Jesus did, and you're thinking, all right, yeah, obviously Jesus is powerful. His word is powerful. This happened. We believe in Jesus. We don't have to worry about demons. We know from Scripture that no believers, there's no example in Scripture anywhere that anyone is ever possessed as a believer. Okay, we can move on. But let's begin to think about this. Your understanding, maybe my understanding, 
of what demons are and how they operate is so radically different. We just saw a very boring exorcism. Yet it was so common that no one even questioned it. How should we think about Satan and demons today in our life? And how does it apply to us, especially with an authoritative word of Jesus? Think historically. Have you ever heard of any history book describing demons having some sort of cosmic battle with God or interfering with the nations or anything like that? No, that's not how we see the history books played out. Yet Scripture says that Satan is at least active in some way and his demons are active in some way and have been uh, probably at a greater time in history, but even today. So where's that activity and how does it affect us? Something to think about. Just the very nature of the battle. Luke eleven twenty through 22 says this. This is Jesus speaking. He says, but if it is by the finger of God, I love that image, just the simple finger of God, that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. You can see the fertile ground that later Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 6, talking about the armor of God. But essentially, in the battle between God and Satan, there is none. It's more of a battle between man and Satan. And whose word has authority in our lives? Revelation chapter 20, verse 3 says this, And he threw him into a pit, referring to Satan, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. There's lots of different ideas on what that is referring to. I believe it's talking about the time period from Jesus forward, this millennium or this thousand years, this long period of time where Jesus is, is, has taken Satan and in basically captured him. And the imagery here is very, very strong that Satan is no longer allowed to not beat up the nations not have this cataclysmic, cosmic battle of the nations, but simply no longer allowed to deceive the nations. His power has been greatly reduced, but it is still there according to the rest of the New Testament. So as you begin to think about just this world, what, what does your life look like next week at work if you get to go to work? How is Satan affecting this world? If it's not through this strange stuff that we see in horror films or on, the, on some news channel in some deep, dark spot in Africa or South America, then how, how does it work? I would suggest to you it works with words. That's the way Satan deceived Adam and Eve, with words and cunning and lies and Scripture that's been slightly twisted. That's how you see Jesus casting out demons with His Word and authority. So in our lives, what does it look like? Verse 36 says this, And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits that they come out. Wow. The question is this, What is this word? For with what authority and power does he command? 
That's the question that we have to ask ourselves. Whose word has authority in our life? Not whose word do we study, whose word do we listen to, whose word uh, do we maybe even have a conversation about in a small group, but whose word really has authority in our life? Well, let's look at what Scripture says about God's word. It's nature, it's power. John 6, 63 says this, It is the Spirit who gives life. This is Jesus speaking. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Jesus' very word is spirit and life. Most people just think, oh, it's just the Bible. Jesus says his word is spirit and life. Again, Jesus speaking in, in Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 to 37 says this, either make the tree good and its fruits good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, he's speaking to the Pharisees here, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So in our lives, the very word of God, we have a choice. And we have a choice on what we can focus upon, whose word has authority in our life. And, and this is this strange picture where some people have said, well, maybe a, a demon could actually possess a person. In Mark 8.33, Jesus says, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So right off the bat, we see not only is God's word spirit and life, and, and our thoughts come and our words form through our heart, or in this particular passage, talking about our minds. We have a choice on where we set our minds. And the things that we set our mind on, those are the things that we begin to place our trust in. They begin to have authority over us. And as we speak, it's we speak. And the words that affect us and affect others come from the heart. And it can either be God's word that we've hidden in our heart out of a renewed heart, a new heart that has been given to us, or we can choose not to put off the old self like we're commanded to in Colossians chapter 3, but just simply speak out of an evil heart. There's this idea that Satan isn't necessarily an individual who has to possess someone, but he can simply influence. He is the father of lies. So, when it comes to everyday life, just ask yourself, whose word? In other words, whose authority? Who are you trusting? Are you trusting in your own thoughts? And where are those thoughts grounded? Or where are they based upon? give you a simple illustration of how important this is, how practical it is. You may never run into an individual who is demon-possessed, but you do have thoughts, and you do have ideas that guide you. And you might think it's the Bible, but frankly, I've discovered this past week, very simple reality is 
I've had to deal with people who have gotten divorces. Many of you know people who have gotten divorces. And as you speak into their life and as you listen to them, you've heard them say and act in a certain way some, some things that, quite frankly, are problematic, even though maybe they're Christians. And they've went through the divorce, and you're thinking to yourself, well, maybe now they'll stop and take stock of their life and do some things different. They've had someone literally reject them, or they've rejected someone else, and there are some serious problems. So now maybe, finally, they'll begin to listen to some wise counsel or open up God's Word and see what it says and and have that influence in their life. Yet, in almost every instance that I know of, if anyone did take stock who's gotten a divorce that I know of, it, it was for a very short time. They essentially have not changed, and they end up maybe seeking a spouse later on that will just simply accept them as they are. It's amazing how powerful thoughts and ideas and words are in our life. You literally cannot change a person. They must make the choice to change for themselves. This idea that we have to worry about just demon possession today and Satan in a, in a movie theatrical way, it really takes our focus off the truth of the reality when even Peter himself had set his mind not on the things of God, but on man. Ephesians chapter 6, I want to invite you to turn there. We're not going to put that up on the screen for you. This is the classic pa- uh, passage talking about what it means to battle Satan. And it's not this demon possession sort of deal that apparently was very common. As a matter of fact, I mean, when's the last time that someone that was demon-possessed came into your church, our church? It just really doesn't happen. Think about this passage. This guy was sitting in their midst. He didn't just run in. He was a seemingly normal guy that people accepted. He was possessed by a demon, but it wasn't, again, the sci-fi perspective. If someone came in to our church like that, good luck, buddy. I mean, there are some moms in here that would be protecting their kids. We would share the love of Jesus with that guy as he is being taken out on a gurney full of gunshot holes, quite frankly. It just wouldn't happen. That sort of crazy sort of demon possession sort of idea, it's much, much more subtle. So subtle, people just ignore it. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 24 says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of His might. Do you wake up in the morning thinking you need to be strong in the Lord? Or you're like, nah, I'll get some coffee in me and I'll, I'll get going. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, against the rulers and uh, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, we're not just wrestling people, uh, trying to uh, battle people in the flesh and, and blood. It's, there is this powerful battle, but it's going on in a way that Scripture describes it against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And what's the answer? Verse 13 Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the day of evil, having done all to stand firm. Going on, what is this armor? 
virtually all of it regard, uh, revolves around the word of God. It says, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, verse 15, and as the shoes of feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. That's a message. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. How do we get faith? From hearing the word of God. And which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Notice this, it's this idea of Satan lobbing darts. These small, annoying, uh, deceptive, powerful, painful implements into your life. It's not killing, it's not taking possession, it's not even destroying. It's just these little, annoying, painful darts. Verse 17, and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with prayer and supplication. So it's reading, it's knowing, it's holding, and it's responding in prayer, again, with words. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. In verse 19, and also for me, notice that words may be given to me in opening my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So all of a sudden, the simple story, we see something radically different and far more challenging. We don't just get, we just don't get off the hook and, and say, oh, well, Jesus is Jesus. He was the Son of God. He had power over demons. Great. Let's move on. No, all of a sudden, we have to deal with the reality of what they were noticing. Notice the very last verse. We'll close here. And it says, in reports about him, who's him? Jesus went out into every place in the surrounding region. If you were there and witnessed that, is that what you would talk about? Is that what I would talk about? I would talk about a demon-possessed dude, right? That's what would be so unusual. We read the Word of God all the time. We think about Jesus all the time. What's unusual is a demon-possessed guy. That's what me reading it in my context, that's what I initially gather. But as we read it, let's step back. As you're reading it, maybe it's Sunday morning and you're sitting there and you're, you're thinking, all right, what do I need to learn from this? How do I apply it? Well, simply this. What amazes you about this passage? Are, do you hear Jesus' words and think, wow, power and authority, or as in recorded in John, life. Do you, do you think about your day and think, I need to put on the armor of God. I really do in some way have, have to face satanic schemes and issues and challenges. I need to be prepared for that. I got to have the word of God in me. I have to be able to take it up as an offensive weapon. I don't know about you, and, and I'll simply close with this. As I talk with people and over the past month and calling them and listening to their stories, most of them are not really doing well. They're doing well with friends. They're getting a lot of house projects done here in Baker City. I'm one of those. Uh, they're, they're outside. They're enjoying things, and, and they're hanging in there. Most of us still get to work. Some don't. But when I say they're not doing well, I ask them, I'm like, all right, what have you been praying? What, what's God doing in your life? 
They're like, well, Scott, I've gotten out of my routine, and I just haven't been in God's Word very much at all. Almost to a person. And you realize, you begin to drift. Just making a simple, maybe, observation here. How many of you have probably memorized the top 20 movies on Netflix or at Redbox? Have you searched YouTube for any and every channel you can possibly find trying to entertain yourself? Are you going to the closet and pulling out old novels, old puzzles? You're bored out of your mind. And yet, the entire time, this is laying right next to you. How much of it have you maybe hidden in your heart in the three weeks? You've had a lot of downtime, more than likely. As you begin to process that, let that sink in. The spiritual battles that we're going to face most of the time begin at home in the morning or even at night when you're trying to go to sleep. What's on your heart? What's on your mind? What word has authority in your life? And you have to ask, why is it so hard to open this? Why is it so hard to memorize this when you can memorize lines in a movie? And with that in mind, realize there's something more going on. There are spiritual battles that we're called and commanded to fight. And it's my prayer this week that you realize where that fight really is, and secondly, how to win it. Because when you begin to listen to the schemes of the devil, Other words begin to have authority in your life. And I do not want that for you because God doesn't want that for you. You can have joy and peace in Christ if His Word is ruling in your heart. The peace of Christ will rule in your heart. If it's not, every time you turn on the news, every time you think about the Constitution being trampled, every time you think about Maybe the diseases in this world that you might get, you're going to be full of fear or anger. That's not God's will for you. Thank you for listening this morning, and I pray this very week, this very hour, you dig in and read for yourself the power of God's Word. Thank you so much. Let me pray for you before we go. Father, I just thank you so much for Blue Mountain Baptist Church. I just thank you for... Um, just their love, their joy, and and their perseverance in this. I've heard from so many of them, and I pray that you would strengthen them and everyone here uh, listening to this video across the nation, that uh, you would guide them into your truth and let it rule in our hearts as we seek you and your will. Help us to be kingdom-minded, not of this world, but of your kingdom, Father. We just thank you for your love and above all else your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to save us and to redeem us. Amen.